get in here and have our Bible class, pastime I guess. I hadn't been up here in a while, so you guys have had it made. Stuck with me again. This being gone a lot, I don't really like it. You seem like you get uh, you get very disconnected when you're gone a while. I don't see how people that miss services a lot, uh, I see why maybe they don't feel like they're close to anybody, because when you're always out and you're somewhere else, you lose sight of what's going on, you you don't know who's sick, who's what, who's where, and and you do get very disconnected, so I'm glad to be back, Lord willing, I don't have anything else scheduled the rest of the year, so you're stuck with me for a while maybe. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we will finish up this chapter today, I appreciate Don teaching for me we thought it best that once he began those qualifications that he finished them that way it was a uh, continual stream of teaching on the same topic we'll start in verse 14 I watched the videos of him doing that he did a great job Uh, I was glad he taught on deacons because I didn't want to do that I'd disqualify myself I'm my own worst critic when it comes to anything so uh Anytime I study things that would apply to me, I sure makes me feel guilty. And uh, some of those things makes me feel guilty. I don't always measure up to a lot of those things. You get to verse 14, Paul tells Timothy, he says, These things I write unto you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. Paul tells Timothy, I'm writing some things unto you, and and I hope that I can come and see you in person very quickly. And if you think about that, Paul was... Uh, on all of these other missionary journeys and all these other places, he really thought and felt that it was very important that he be with Timothy. Timothy's a young man, he needs guidance, but Paul understood that it's only if the Lord wills that we are allowed to do anything. He had a plan in place, he was going to come to him. Did that ever happen? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. He says, but I'm writing these things unto you. What are the things that he's talking about? Well, the the book, the whole book of 1 Timothy, this is the purpose of the book. I'm writing these things unto you because it may be possible that that I don't get to come to you, or it may be possible that it's going to be a while, and I want you to know these things. They're of utmost importance, and we'll bring that in uh, in a moment. He says, I'm writing these things unto you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now, in the American Standard and in the ESV, it's translated just a little bit different. Actually, that second you, or thou, if you've got a King James, it's not in the original. He says, I'm writing these things so that men may know how they ought to conduct themselves. He's not telling Timothy, Timothy, this book is just for you. That's not what he's saying at all. It most definitely applies to Timothy. But what he's saying is these things I'm writing so that Christians will know how they're to conduct themselves. So that Christians will know how they are to get along. I want you to notice something. He says, 
this word conduct, if you've got a King James, it's going to say behave. But this is a word that means the order that you are to, to act upon, the behavior that, that you're supposed to have. And he says, I, I want you to know how you're to behave, how you're to uh, have proper conduct in the church. Well, why would he say that? First and foremost, I want us to understand something. He says the church is the house of God. And he did that for a specific purpose. The church was prophesied to be the house of God. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says it will come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. It's going to be established in Jerusalem in the last days. All the nations are going to flow into it. We appeal to that a lot of times. But the Bible calls it a house. When it calls it a house, it's not necessarily dictating any kind of building, any kind of structure at all, but it's dictating or trying to tell us, use a word that's going to talk about a family. Within my house, who dwells there? My family, right? It really has nothing to do with the place that I live because I've lived in different places, but my house is where my family dwells. Well, God's house is where his family dwells. God's house here on Willow Avenue, we are together here in this place. It really has not a lot to do with this place, but it has to do with us as a family. He says, I'm writing these things in this book to you so that you as a family at Willow Avenue, you know how to behave. Well, let's think about that just for a second. Chapter 1, what's it about? Well, in chapter 1, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of division, right? And there's people teaching different things. There's all these problems going around. And he's telling them, you've got to take a stand. You've got to take a stand. Chapter 2 opens up. And he says, listen, you guys, you need to pray for each other. You need to pray for each other. You need to pray for everybody that's around you. He said men have a specific role within this family. Women have a specific role within this family. Chapter 3 opens up. We've studied most of it. He says there are different orders within this family. Some people need to be elders. Some people need to be deacons. And in the rest of the book is going to carry on, but he's telling us all of this to squash the strife. Sometimes even within a family, sometimes especially within a family, what do we have? Problems, right? Anybody's Christmas here go off without a hitch and nobody ever gets mad at anybody? I'll wait for your hands. Doesn't work, does it? When you get a lot of people together, a lot of times there's problems, right? There's all of these things that happen. Okay, well, let's look at this thing as a house. Any of you ever sent your kids over to somebody else's house and you tell them, now you're at their house, so you abide by their what? Rules. My rules at my house, they may be different from the rules at your house, but we are in God's house. As a family, we're gathered together, and we are God's spiritual house. It's a building made without hands, the Bible talks about. So when we are a part of his house, we abide by whose rules? You see, and sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Families don't always get along, but as Christians, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And what do we do when, when there's issues, when there's problems? Well, we go back to the book, right? Paul told Timothy, these things I'm writing unto you so that you may know how to behave 
in the house of God. You know, as Christians, like I said, problems are inevitable. What do we do? Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible tells us we've got to let the peace of God rule within our hearts. You say, well, so what does that mean? The word rule in Colossians 3, verse 15 is a, a sports metaphor. And it literally would be the same word we would talk about an umpire. Uh, an umpire at a baseball game, what's his job? He gets to make the call, right? He either makes the call, you're right or you're wrong, you're safe, you're out, whatever. He says, let the peace of God rule. The peace of God is the umpire in dealing with all spiritual matters. So when you get to chapter 1 in the book of Timothy, and we've not got to the end, and I won't allude to that. Chapter 1, we've got to contend for the truth. There are things that are right, things that are wrong. As a family of God, God has set forth what is right. and Therefore, we've got to abide by it. We always go back to it. Your opinion doesn't matter. Mine doesn't matter. Chapter 2, men have a role, women have a role. Does that squash all strife? Think about it. You say, yeah, but I think women should be able to do this, and I think men should. Chapter 2, what does he tell us? Here's what men do. Here's what women do. If we let the peace of God be the umpire, what happens? Strife goes away. Chapter 3, he says, okay, these men need to be elders. These men maybe need to be deacons. What if you say, yeah, but I think this guy should be an elder. He's a really good guy, and he gives more than anybody else. And can we squash the strife by letting the peace of God rule? Yeah. He laid down specific qualifications. If you don't meet this, you can't be in this position. So therefore, if we just simply go by the book, what happens? Problems go out the window, right? If we simply go by the book, you realize most church problems, I would say 95, 98% of the problems we have at this congregation, elders can correct me if they want to, it's matters of opinion. We don't have a whole lot of doctrinal problems, I don't think. I don't, I don't think things are taught in error, and I don't think people are trying to, to change things that, as far as the Bible teaching, but it's differences of opinion. It's personal preference. It's, you know, somebody wants it this way and somebody else wants it that way, and, and that's where the problems come from. But if we just go back to what Paul told Timothy, it stops all of that. He says, I'm writing this book, and that's why I feel like it's so important to study this book. This book is going to tell us how we as a congregation can get along, how we can work together that, you know, everything's going to work. I want to bring something else up. He says, I'm writing these things to tell you how you behave in the house of God. You realize a lot of religious people think you can have God without being a part of his family, his church. I even heard a, a man one time that debated my father-in-law. I was there on the stage sitting beside him, and, and he said there'll be people in heaven that wasn't part of the church. And he alluded to a verse in Revelation where it talked about they were walking in the light. Uh, he said that means they were outside of this. They were never part of the church, but they were just walking in light. They were saved and they were part of God, but they weren't part of the family. How many people are a part of your family that you don't have within your household? You say, oh, well, some of them move out. I'm not talking about that. A family is a household, right? Your children are part of your household, whether they live with you or whether they don't. As a part of God's family, we've got to be part of his house. It doesn't work any other way. You can't be a part of God and never be a part of his family. His family is the church. They're one and the same. He translates us into 
his kingdom at the same point that he delivers us from the powers of darkness. Colossians 1 verse 13. We need to understand those things. A lot of people today, they push aside the church. Give me God, but I don't want the church. Give me God, but I don't want religion. It doesn't work. He said, here's how you act as a Christian as a part of God's family. And again, we can't have it uh, the way we want it. All right, let's move on. He says, we got to know how to behave ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Church of the living God. He said that for a specific purpose, especially in this time period. People served a lot of what? Dead idols, right? And they looked at a lot of, of, of you know, structures, of, of, of idols, whatever it may have been. He wants us to remind them we serve a living God. He is the one true and only God. And this church most definitely uh, belongs to Him. Jesus is God, so I don't want to have anybody understand, misunderstand here. Jesus is deity. All right, He says the church is the pillar and the ground of truth you think about that your house your your physical material house that you live upon what holds it up the ground and and the pillars the foundation right that's what holds it up i mean before you build a house you make sure you've got a good foundation you dig it out you lay blocks you put columns in all of those things and that is what holds it up now you picture the apostle paul when he's saying this He's there in that time period and you see all of these amazing structures and and what do you see a lot of times on those ancient buildings? You see these massive columns, right? And those massive columns are holding up so much. You remember Samson in the Bible, they placed him between two of the columns in a building. What did he do? He pushed them and what happened? The whole building fell. So he's given us this metaphor of the church is what holds up the truth. Think about that. That is, a, that is a weighty responsibility. The church, you and I as Christians, our job is to support the truth. Is to hold it up for the world to see. Now that's a, that's a serious thing. Number one thing we've got to understand with this, if our job is to hold up the truth for the world, then that means the truth has to be able to be known, Right? You know, a lot of people today, they don't believe that. They don't believe that we can really know what the truth is and things are, are subject to different interpretations, different opinions, all of these different things. But if, if my job is to hold up the truth, I've got to be able to know what that is. Otherwise, he's asking me to do the impossible. God doesn't ask us to do the impossible. Jesus says you can know the truth, John 8, verse 32. And that truth will make you free. So he's telling me as a Christian, I've got to support the truth. All right? I wrote down some different things here. How do we support the truth? Number one, the number one way we support the truth is by believing it and obeying it. That's simple, right? That's how we show the world. We are the the light to the world, the city set up on a hill. We're the salt of the earth. We're the lights in the dark world, Philippians 2 verse 15. We're all of these things. We are to support the truth. Number one way we do that is ourselves. We've got to believe it and obey it. We could look at tons of scriptures. Number two, we've got to rightly divide it. We cannot support the truth if we bend the truth 
to our own pleasure. 2 Timothy 2.15, the next book that he's going to write, Timothy says you've got to study. Or King, the New King James says, be diligent to present yourself unto God, a workman that needeth to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He says don't, don't bend it to what you think it is. Don't you know, mold the Bible to fit your life. He says you, you've got to study it for what it is. And you've got to treat it for what it is. It's the Word of God. You've got to make it all fit together. Number three, we've got to put it in our hearts. We've got to put it in our hearts. First, we've got to believe it and obey it. We've got to rightly divide it. We've got to put it in our hearts where it belongs. Colossians 3.16, the Bible says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Put it in your heart. Psalm 119, verse 10 and 11, How shall a young man cleanse his way? Well, he takes heed into it. He, he, he hides God's Word in his heart that it won't sin against him. You understand that is the place that it belongs. Before we can support the truth to the world, we've got to believe it and obey it. We've got to rightly divide it, and we've got to put it in ourselves. We've got to mold our life after uh, the book. Then we've got to defend it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. Now here's where it's kind of difficult today. How many of us like to defend the truth today? Let's be honest about it. We live in a day and time that defending what you believe is frowned upon, isn't it? It's really frowned upon, and a lot of Christians today, they don't want to do that. They don't want to be controversial in any shape, form, or fashion. They want everything to be politically correct, and, and they want everybody just to get along and not ever ruffle any feathers. But sometimes defending truth does what? It hurts, right? In John chapter 6, Jesus was teaching those people. And man, he loved those people, and he wanted them to be saved. And they told him, they said, what you're saying is hard. What did he say? I'll back up here a little bit. Let's change it. That's not what he said. They said it's so hard to the point we're going to leave. And what did he say? He turned and looked at his apostles and said, are you going to leave too? I mean, he's not trying to be offensive, but the point is, by defending the truth, sometimes it's going to offend. Jesus said, I've come to, and I'm going to set people at variance against one another. He says, if you're going to teach this, if you're going to abide by this, he said, it's going to put families that are going to headbutt. There's going to be people that are not going to get along. And they're going to fight and fuss about it and all of these things. And he knew that. But yet he gave it to us anyways and he taught us to defend it. So if the church, if us as Christians here at Willow Avenue, if we're the pillar in the ground of truth, then we're to support that truth in the world. We're to stand by it. And listen, that doesn't work. That doesn't work if we all don't do it together. You know, I thought about the way in this morning. I told my wife, we go by Cane Creek every time we, we come to services. And every Sunday morning, 8 o'clock, there's people on the ball field. Church has lost their influence. I'm talking about just if you want to look at religious, Jesus Christ, whatever you want to look at, the church has lost her influence. Used to, ball fields wouldn't be full at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. But what's happened? Nobody takes a stand. Nobody says anything about it. We try to work around basketball or football or baseball, whatever it may be, instead of making it work around the church. That's what's happened. You see, we're not pillar in the ground of truth to people. 
I can remember several years ago, a congregation had the starting five on the basketball team. And I thought, man, you talk about some leverage here. These people can band together. They can get some things changed. Some of them wanted to. Some of them didn't. Nothing changed. Christians don't stand together. Don't stand together. If we're going to defend the truth, if we're going to defend what's right, God's got to come first. We've got to teach our children that. We've got to put that out in the world. And you realize people would respect things if we'll take a stand. But it's been way too long since we took any kind of stand. Again, we mold the Bible to fit our life. And I'm afraid sometimes we're not the pillar in the ground of truth. And it's sad. It's truly sad. We've got to proclaim the Word of God. That's the Great Commission. And we've got to practice it before others. That's how we support the truth. Our number one commission in this world is to seek and save the lost. And if everything that we are doing as a church is not pointing in that direction, we're not supporting the truth. That's what Jesus was here to do. You say, yeah, but Jesus helped people and He fed people and He did all of those things. He did all of those things with what purpose in mind? You want to save their soul. So if we as a church, if we're just simply focused on doing good things and if we don't have any motivation pointing it in the right direction, we're not the pillar in the ground of truth. We are focusing on what we want to do and what we think is good and right. Everything has got to be for the purpose of we're trying to get people to heaven. We're trying to save the people. And Paul wants Timothy to understand that. He says, you've got to do that. Quickly, we're going to try to finish this last verse uh, and finish up the chapter. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He says, this thing that you're defending, that you're standing up for, that that you are willing to to give your life for, that, that is your very essence, he says, without controversy, it's great. There's no dispute. There's no question. It is absolute. It is great because Jesus is who we're talking about because there's so much proof. Acts chapter 1 verse 3, through many infallible proofs, he's shown himself alive. Everything that he said that he would do, he did, and there's no doubting it. It's without controversy. People cannot go against it and say things against it. He says, and I want you guys to know that. Now what he's about to go into Uh, Most commentators I read said this was probably an early song within the church. And maybe people even sang this, these words, these six things that's going to describe Jesus. And six marvelous things. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. Quickly, I want us to turn over to Romans chapter 16. Best way to explain this verse or talking about the mystery of godliness is to let the Bible explain itself. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 25. You know, a lot of people appeal to the book of Romans, and they do so because... They think they can get out of baptism and uh, they can get away from any obedience to the gospel. But I want you to notice something. We're going to look at the very last few verses of the book. Before I do that, I want to read to you the very first of the book. 
It says, verse 5 in Romans chapter 1, Through him, speaking of Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. The book begins with the only way you get something from him is because of your obedience. The book ends with what we're looking at, talking about the mystery of godliness. He says, verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, this is Paul speaking, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now has made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God. There it is again for the obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. The mystery was kept secret all throughout the Old Testament. It was prophesied, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. The mystery has been revealed now, and we have it. Let's run through this quickly. He was manifested in the flesh. You realize, especially during this time period, a lot of people, they denied that Jesus was in the flesh. They said the flesh was sinful, and therefore God would never dwell in sinful flesh. But John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us the word that was talked about, the creator of the universe, Jesus, was made flesh. He did dwell in flesh. First uh, John chapter 4, 1 through 3 talks about that. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18 talks about that. Second, he said he was justified in the Spirit. Sometimes when we think of justified, normally we think that, that we were made sinless, that our sin was taken away. But the word literally means to be vindicated or proved to be right. In essence, that's what God does for us. He proves us to be right. He changes us. He makes us righteous. But in this sense, it's talking about Jesus was vindicated. He was proved to be right. He is the Son of God. And he, how did this happen? The Spirit. You realize the Spirit was involved in his conception? How was he conceived? By the Spirit, right? He was conceived miraculously through the Spirit. The Spirit was there at his baptism. When Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, was baptized by John, what happened? The Spirit descended upon him like a dove, Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17. Uh, the Spirit aided in his resurrection. The Bible talks about that in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The Spirit declared to us that he was the Son of God, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. The Spirit was involved in every part of Jesus' life, proving that he is who he said he was. All right, third, he was seen by angels, seen by angels. Notice again, angels had a, a huge part in his earthly life. At his birth, who was there praising the baby born? Angels, right? That's in Luke chapter 2, verse 7 through 15. At his temptation, when he went up into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, who was there to aid him at the end of that? Angels came and ministered unto him and strengthened him. All right, at Gethsemane, hang on, we're just skipping through, there's a lot more places, but at Gethsemane, when he was there in the garden and he fell down and he's, his sweat is as great drops of blood, who came and strengthened him? Angels, right? All right, at the tomb, at the tomb, who was there? Who announced his resurrection? Who was there to tell the people what had happened? Who was there to roll away the stone? Angels, right? Angels. At his ascension, who was there? Acts chapter 1, 10 and 11. Angels. They said, why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? 
And he told them what had just happened. There was angels at every part of Jesus' life, and those angels were praising him. We learned something from the book of Hebrews. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Jesus was made a man. You and I are men. If angels felt that Jesus was worthy to give their adoration and praise to, and we're lower than them, what does that mean? That means we should do likewise, right? And that's the point that Paul's trying to make. He preached uh, among the Gentiles, was preached among the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the people there, you're going to be witnesses unto me in in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in where? The uttermost part of the earth. He says, I want the gospel preached to everybody. That was the Great Commission, right? Going to all the world and preach the gospel. Mark 16, 15. You know, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, the gospel was preached to every creature under heaven. The gospel was taken everywhere. He still wants that done today. That is our job uh, as Christian. He was believed on by the world. I, I want to read something. I'm not a Burton Kaufman, a uh, huge Burton Kaufman fan, but he had a comment on this that I thought was great, and this was in other commentaries. They quoted him about Jesus being believed on in the world. He says, This is a continuing mystery. Contrary to every evil, in spite of what appears, to be every good reason against it, the Word of God still falls in good and honest hearts, and God continues to reap His precious harvest of souls from the earth. In spite of a roaring tornado of wickedness on every side, God's faithful continue to love Him rather than darkness. Countless thousands or millions, no one knows how many, continue to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And every passing decade sees more buildings erected in the name of Christ and dedicated to the service than were ever built and dedicated to any earthly ruler in all history. Yes, our Lord is believed on in the world. I think he hit the nail on the head, right? Last, he said he was received up in the glory. God sent him down here and God took him back. I appreciate your attention. Our time is up.